You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. In this episode of Talking Taiwan, my guest, Richard Pearson, the executive director of the Western Pacific Fellowship Project, and Professor Shelley Rigger will be talking about the Taiwan Fellowship Act, a bill which has been decades in the making and was inspired by the Mansfield Fellowship. This bill, which has gotten bipartisan support in both the U.S. and Taiwan, has been added to the Competes Act and has also passed through both the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate in slightly different versions. Now the House and Senate are in conference committee to resolve differences in order to come up with the final version of the bill. Learn more about what the Taiwan Fellowship Act is, how it serves to strengthen U.S.-Taiwan ties, why you should care about it, and how you can support passage of this bill into law. Here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, Felicia. Thank you for having us. So today, I wanted to have the two of you here to talk about the Competes Act and the Taiwan Fellowship Act. So to start the conversation, let's talk about what is the background of these acts and who initiated the creation of these acts, when were they drafted, and how long have you been working on getting them passed? I understand it's actually been quite some time that this has been in the works. It has. Um, so Shelley and I are representing an organization called the Western Pacific Fellowship Project, of which I'm the executive director. It's a small, nonprofit, all-volunteer organization based just outside of Boston. And it was really created by us and a number of other people who are very interested in U.S. relations with Asia to promote this Taiwan Fellowship um, concept and to bring to fruition a long-term government-to-government fellowship between the U.S. and Taiwan. And we felt in our discussions with people in Congress and experts both in the U.S. and Taiwan that pursuing it through legislation would be the best way not only to create the program and get it up and running, but really to ensure its long-term survival um, over the years and decades going forward. And so to do that, we drafted the Taiwan Fellowship Act, um, which we then, uh, we didn't introduce, we gave it to a number of people in Congress and a number of senators and members of Congress, including Senator Markey here in Massachusetts, introduced it into the Congress as a bill. And these bills never move quite, as you would think, swiftly through the process, right to the president's desk. They go through sort of a sausage-making process of, of editing and tweaking and people changing. And then the bills, these smaller bills like this one, are generally added to larger bills, which are ca called vehicles. And these larger legislative vehicles are what eventually make their way in thousands of pages through Congress, hopefully to passage, uh, and then to the president's desk. So the Taiwan Fellowship Act is only about 25 pages, and it has been added as part of this much larger 2,000-something page Competes Act. And the Competes Act has now passed both the House and the Senate in slightly different versions. Uh, what's going on now is Congress is meeting in what they call a conference committee to try to resolve those differences, come up with one document that uh, is exactly alike in all 2,000 pages that both the Congre both houses of Congress can pass, 
and get to the president's desk. Can we talk a little bit more about uh, what is the Competes Act and what's involved with the Taiwan Fellowship Act? Sure. So the Competes Act is the larger bill, and it brings a number of different acts together. So it brought to, it brings together the United States Innovation and Competition Act. Um, it brings together bipartisan um, policy initiative act, I believe. It brings together a number of acts, but the key one for for I think the audience here is not only the Taiwan Fellowship Act, but the larger you'll see it called the China Bill, because the Competes Act really breaks down into a number of things that are aimed at strengthening the U.S. response to Chinese economic activities and Chinese um, political and security moves around the world. So. The parts of the Competes Act that are getting the most attention in the press right now are really the ones dealing with the semiconductor industry and Congress's interest in strengthening the U.S. semiconductor industry through um, billions of dollars in bonus and grants and subsidies aimed at creating more semiconductor fabs here in the United States. And I, I believe that some Taiwanese companies are probably looking at that and thinking about what are the incentives to building and increasing their semiconductor production here in the United States. TSMC, of course, is, is building a big fab in Arizona, and some of the other big players are looking at possibly um, doing more production here in the United States. So it's part of an effort to strengthen U.S. semiconductor manufacturing, to diversify away from China. Um, and also to just improve the overall U.S. domestic manufacturing environment. And then there are also a lot of items in the bills pertaining to monitoring what China is doing around the world. So there's a lot of congressionally ordered reporting on Chinese economic and political activities in Africa, in Latin America, and elsewhere um, in hopes of helping the U.S. to have a better sense for what Chinese companies and Chinese government agencies are doing all around the world. And so the bill mandates more reporting back to the legislative branch on those things. Uh, for Taiwan specifically, um, I believe the Taiwan Fellowship Act is the only part of it that's really so focused specifically on U.S.-Taiwan ties. Um, though, of course, the larger bills, both the, the China-related bills and the semiconductor manufacturing bills, will have a significant impact on, on Taiwan and on Taiwanese companies um, active in that sector. And I think the bill, the overall competes bill, is quite well supported in a bipartisan fashion. Um, these bills have passed both the House and the Senate, um, so I think that chances of the Congress coming up with a compromise version and getting it to the President's desk sometime this summer are quite high. When I came across this Competes Act and Taiwan Fellowship Act, I also heard that part of this would be related to possible renaming of what we know as the Taipei Economic Representative Office, TECRO, that those offices could be renamed as the Taiwan Representative Office. And I understand that's part of this whole package. Could you explain how that works? Yeah, my understanding is that that act that you're referring to is a separate bill distinct from the Taiwan Fellowship Act, um, which Shelley and I have been working to promote. So we are not involved in the naming issue. Um, 
the Competes Act contains many, many different bills. Uh, some, like these two bills, are somewhat related in the sense that they both deal with Taiwan. Uh, others have nothing to do with Taiwan or, or with other bills. They just sort of find their way into a larger package, a larger legislative vehicle. So if the whole package, now called the Competes Act, does reach the president's desk and he signs it, then all of the underlying bills contained within will also become law. That doesn't mean they're the same bill or they're related, um, and, and that's the case here. My understanding is that the TECRO naming issue is a separate bill also within the Competes Act, uh, and its supporters are also hopeful that the Competes Act is signed into law um, so that their bill, their TECRO naming bill, will become law. Uh, Shelley and I are promoting the Taiwan Fellowship Act, and that too would become law, assuming the president signs the Competes Act, as well as, you know, easily a hundred other different acts that have all found their way into this final package. Okay, so a layman's way of explaining that is like you guys are all in the same boat together, <laughs> but you're yeah, not necessarily. Yeah, I think necessarily... that is a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, you know, we may be, we may know each other or have some interests in common, but you know, we're on our own separate journeys in mm-hmm. a sense. At the opening hearing on the Competes Act, now the Bipartisan Innovation Act on May twelfth. Most of the discussion focused on China and the China and U.S. response to China. How does this act and the program fit into that, into that conversation? Well, I think the Taiwan Fellowship Act fits into that larger question of response to China because at its core, the Taiwan Fellowship Act is promoting a program of training U.S. government officials in East Asian affairs and in Mandarin Chinese. So as the U.S. starts to, is thinking about, well, how are we going to be ready to engage with and also respond to the People's Republic of China, making sure that we have enough people in our country working inside the government who speak Chinese and are conversant in regional issues, whatever their area of specialty may be, whether it's economic or trade or military, Um, is important. And I think that this act is a very creative and innovative way of readying the U.S. um, across the government and across society in some ways to uh, respond better to the China challenge. And I think that's why the Taiwan Fellowship Act has seen such strong support in Congress, because it's not only seen as a strong demonstration of American support for Taiwan across the American society, but it's also seen as a very proactive and positive way of strengthening America's own ability to respond to the China challenge. And that's why it's seen really bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. For my listeners, let's talk about what is the Taiwan Fellowship Act? What will it do? Why is it important? Has anything else been attempted like this before, either for Taiwan or another country as a comparison? So the Taiwan Fellowship Act would create Uh, what we're calling the Taiwan Fellowship Program. And what that would be is a government-to-government fellowship program between the United States and Taiwan. It would provide a congressionally created and congressionally sanctioned way for U.S. government officials, roughly 10 per year, to take two years away from their normal duties 
and spend one year in Taiwan studying Mandarin Chinese full-time in a full immersion intensive environment, and their second year working as fellows placed inside offices in Taiwan, including Taiwan government offices, companies, uh, and nonprofit organizations. So it's really a very practical way of not only strengthening the working level bonds between government officials in the U.S. and Taiwan, but also in training America's next generation of East Asia and Chinese language experts, the people who are going to, over the next 10, 20, 30 years, really guide and staff the relationships between the United States and not only Taiwan, but other countries of East Asia, especially, of course, China. It's not um, a new concept. It's based on a very successful concept that's been uh, tried with Japan. Roughly 30 years ago, Congress created what is today called the Mike Mansfield Fellowship, named after the then U.S. ambassador to Japan, Mike Mansfield, who had also been a longtime congressman and senator from Montana. And that program similarly provides an avenue for U.S. government officials to spend time studying Japanese and then working inside government offices in Japan. It's been an extremely successful program. It's done a lot to strengthen working level ties between the U.S. and its treaty ally, Japan. And now, roughly 30 years later, there's a strong feeling in the Congress, as evidenced by the success of the Taiwan Fellowship Act, that the United States needs not only to uh, in, increase its engagement with the, Taiwan, but also to strengthen its own preparations for dealing with China and its own development of its next generation of East Asia expertise. So the program follows a very successful model done with another very important U.S. partner in East Asia, um, but this time it's looking at Taiwan and the training of people in Chinese language. Shelley, did you want to add anything? Yeah, you know, something I want to say about why this program is exciting to me is that for many years, all kinds of China specialists, people who thought of themselves as, you know, Chinese linguists and people developing the skills to represent the U.S. government well in Chinese, in the Sinophone world, and to analyze information coming from the PRC, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, they were trained in Taiwan. You know, for many decades, it was not possible for people to go to the PRC for language training, uh, for that kind of cultural immersion. And so we have generations of specialists who have a deep understanding of Taiwan and of the PRC because they've worked on both sides. But since it became possible for Americans to study abroad and to do Chinese language training in the PRC, the, uh, the sort of ambidextrous nature of those earlier generations who knew both sides of the Taiwan Strait well has begun to diminish and I think it's exciting to have an opportunity for our experts to 
not just be exposed to information about Taiwan from a U.S. perspective or a PRC perspective because they're posted somewhere in the mainland, but actually from the inside of Taiwan as well. And I think that will really improve their ability to anticipate what uh, Taiwan's government may do in response to developments in the relationships and will also just help them to communicate better, not just with PRC counterparts, but also with um, counterparts in Taiwan too. So why should Americans care about Taiwan or getting the Taiwan Fellowship Act passed? Well, I think Americans should want to care about getting the Taiwan Fellowship Act passed because not only is it um, a productive way of training U.S. government people to respond to the China challenge and to make sure that our country is ready um, for dealing with the People's Republic of China over the years and decades ahead, but it's also a strong testament to U.S. cooperation with a key democratic partner in East Asia, a region of the world where democracy is increasingly imperiled. This program has been very successful with, you know, as I said, America's democratic um, treaty ally, Japan. And I think it's very much a recognition on the part of the American people working through Congress of Taiwan's democratic achievement over over the decades, um, that it now can enjoy a similar program of cooperation and relationship building with the U.S. In terms of why Taiwan overall matters, Shelley wrote a book called Why Taiwan Matters. So I'll, I'll let her take it from there. Yeah, I think that's a, a really, you've put it very well, Richard. You know, uh, there's a temptation among some in the U.S. and especially uh, sometimes in Congress to equate pro-Taiwan with anti-China. So we should do things for or with Taiwan because that's a way to kind of get under China's skin or create problems for China. I think that's really the wrong way to look at it. I don't think we should use Taiwan as a weapon in some kind of competition with the PRC. I think why we should care about Taiwan, why Taiwan matters to the U.S. is that it is precisely the kind of partner that we need and that we benefit from having in the world. They set an amazing example for other countries that aspire to democracy and prosperity to be able to look to Taiwan as a success story. The way Taiwan has maintained itself and has sustained its democracy and its self-government and its economic prosperity in the face of these incredible challenges and incredible pressure from the PRC is also a, a model to other countries. You know, countries like Ukraine, countries like Czech, the Czech Republic or Czechia, uh, others in Eastern and Central Europe that feel so much pressure from Russia and pressure sometimes from Western Europe too. You know, the, the idea that you can withstand that pressure and that you don't have to succumb to the forces of authoritarianism in order to survive things like COVID. You know, Taiwan is just such a high achieving 
player in the global community. And I think that's why Taiwan matters to us. And I worry when it feels like Taiwan is always spoken of only in the context of the PRC, because I think that the context for Taiwan is regional. It's East Asia broadly, including Japan, Korea, Philippines, Southeast Asia, Oceania, and Taiwan is a global interest for the U.S. So it's not just something that, you know, comes up when we're talking about um, the People's Republic of China. Oh, thank you for that, uh, Shelley. I appreciate that. And I'm also curious to know, what is the procedure for an act to get passed? And also, more specifically, in the context of this act, what is it going to take to get this act passed? So it's a long process. Yeah, I would just tell you that Richard Pearson has been working on this for ages. And he's, <laughs> I think, nearing the finish line, but I will let him... Um, yes tell you that. Yes, I certainly hope so. It seems like we finally are. Um, If you've ever seen the old, uh, I think it's a PBS video, Schoolhouse Rocks on how to get a bill passed. It's, uh, It's instructive in the sense of giving you the basic rundown. A bill is introduced by a member of Congress, a member of the Senate, or a member of the House. And then it goes through different committees. Um, until it reaches a vote in one chamber, and then it gets all that once more in the other chamber, and then it goes to the president's desk and it's signed into law. That's the basic outline. Unfortunately, it's not quite that simple or that swift. Um, In the case of the Taiwan Fellowship Act, we've been promoting it for quite a number of years, and we found just a few years ago that the mood in both the U.S. and Taiwan was really right to make this program a reality. Uh, We drafted the legislation based on not only what we saw with the Mansfield Fellowship and what worked well and what we thought we could do better, but also what we thought would be of value to the U.S. uh, and Taiwan bilateral relationship. And we then introduced it to people in Congress and asked them their thoughts and if this was something they would be willing to get behind and to formally introduce as a bill. And we found, uh, being based in Massachusetts, uh, we found a great reception from Senator Markey. And he was also then instrumental in working with others in the Senate, uh, primarily Senator Rubio, to introduce it in the Senate. And then on the House side, the bill was introduced in this Congress uh, by Congressman Berra and Congressman Shabbat. Uh, Shabbat will be no stranger to a lot of your listeners. He has a long track record of being very supportive of Taiwan engagement and a great friend to Taiwan and U.S.-Taiwan ties. Uh, All of these uh, representatives and senators have a long standing interest in East Asia and also leadership positions on the various committees and subcommittees, uh, such as foreign affairs. Uh, uh, Senator Markey, in fact, is chairman of the East Asia subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, So we were very fortunate that he was also our Massachusetts senator. So the bills made their way into Congress. They were then assigned to different committees for evaluation and study, and different offices in Congress weighed in, uh, tweaked it, offered edits, things that they thought would work better or would not be acceptable. Uh, And then, of course, other parts of the government weighed in 
I wouldn't be surprised if uh, representatives from TechRow were consulted by some of the congressional staffers who worked on it. And we also had a lot of outreach from civil society groups around the U.S., well known to many of your members, including FAPA, including the North American Taiwanese Medical Association, the North American Taiwanese Professors Association, um, the Taiwanese American Associations, all weighed in with letters of support um, to their uh, to, to the various members of Congress. And we also had outreach, grassroots outreach from around the country, um, which was very important in moving the bill forward. And I would encourage any of your listeners who are supportive of the Taiwan Fellowship Act to weigh in with their members of Congress and say, this is something that I value and I want to see passed into law as soon as possible. So that's really where how the bill moved forward. It was incorporated into a number of larger bills in the Senate and the House. Those bills all eventually made their way into this sort of final product, which is now the Competes Act. Uh, the Competes Act was passed by the House and the Senate and is now being um, discussed in conference committee with an aim to come up with an exactly identical compromise version, which can then be uh, passed quickly again and sent to the president's desk. And Shelley's right that we do seem to be nearing the finish line in that the Competes Act is in conference committee and Speaker Nancy Pelosi just said yesterday that she expects that we'll see passage um, before July 4th. It's being heavily promoted by the White House. And so I do think the Competes Act will pass. I'm hopeful that Speaker Pelosi is right. It'll pass uh, by Independence Day and then quickly be signed into law by the president. But this is a crucial time. So if you are supportive of the Taiwan Fellowship Act or any of the bills within the Competes Act, this is really the time to weigh in because changes can be made for better or for worse. Bills can be cut during the conference process. And it's important that uh, members hear from citizens all around the country on what their priorities are and that they hear, we support the Taiwan Fellowship Act, um, move it forward. And now for a short break. Hello, listeners. We're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content under 20 minutes long. And we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. 
Now, back to the episode. If people want to show their support, they need to contact their representative. There are probably ways to do that online and to write a letter saying specifically that I support this act. Yes, there absolutely are. Uh, writing a letter, unfortunately, isn't the best way to go right now, um, just because so many of the offices are still under COVID protocols and mail isn't necessarily being answered. Uh, but email is really the way to go. Every member of Congress, every senator has a website. And you go in there, you enter your name, your address um, to prove you're a constituent and send a quick, you know, three sentence note that says, I support the Taiwan Fellowship Act um, for these reasons and send it in. You could also go on to the website of FAPA, the Formosan Association for Public Affairs, and they have an automated system where you enter, I believe, your zip code and it sends it automatically to your two senators and one member of Congress. And that has a longer letter, which you can edit as you want, as you wish, uh, expressing your support for uh, the Taiwan Fellowship Act or some of the other Taiwan-related acts that are in the Competes Act. Yes, thank you for that tip. Um, I actually have done that myself, and we will include a link to that page on FAPA's website so that anybody listening, if they're interested in showing their support, if you go to the show notes for this episode you'll be able to do so i'm just curious like by comparison you mentioned the mansfield fellowship act how long did that act take to get passed do you happen to know i don't know exactly it took a few years i believe it went forward in one congress and didn't quite make it uh, and then it did in the following congress it all happened between, I would say, 1992 and 1995. Mm -hmm. So it was roughly a three-year process. I I would say, you know, it's kind of an issue of the grassroots versus the treetops. The Mansfield Fellowship Act had the advantage of having come from Congress. It was created by a congressional staffer who Mm -hmm. felt it would make sense. uh, And he was Mm -hmm. able to go directly to his boss, Senator Mm -hmm. Ross Mm -hmm. of Delaware, uh, Roth Mm -hmm. um, at the time. Uh, Senator Roth was able to bring in other senators to very quickly get support. Uh, And they also wanted to honor their longtime friend and colleague, Senator Mansfield. So that was sort of a a Mm treetops-led initiative. Mm -hmm. I would say ours was more grassroots. Right because we were an organization of volunteers who drafted things on our home computers um, Mm -hmm. and reached out to FAPA and other networks Mm -hmm. all across the country and promoted it up that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Either way, I think that the program, the value was seen pretty quickly, and that's why the Mansfield Fellowship passed into law and why it looks like the Taiwan Fellowship will also become law. I think in some ways, both were creative, uh, proactive, and, and basically positive responses to issues that were going on at the time. If you remember the mid-90s, there was some tension in the U.S. about Japan's economic power, and there was a feeling that the U.S. needed to engage more rather than less with Japan. And so the Mansfield Fellowship Act was seen as a way to engage positively with Japan and to highlight the positives in the relationship during an era of unfortunate Japan bashing and other negative sentiments. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly, right now, the big issue is the U.S. response, not only to China, but how we engage with democracies in Asia. And that's why I think the Taiwan Fellowship Act is seen as a very positive 
um, proactive way of doing so. Richard, I understand you've been working on this for quite a few years. Has it been since like uh, when, since 2020 or before that, that you started working on this? Well, actually, we began looking at this even further back. We began looking at this when I actually was working at the Mansfield Foundation, and I got to see the value of the Mansfield Fellowship in strengthening the U.S.-Japan relationship. And I had spent some time in Taiwan immediately after college Mm -hmm. around 2000, and I quickly felt that there could be value in doing a program like that with Taiwan. So in some sense, I'd been working on it, and I first got in touch with Shelley maybe about 10 years ago. But at that time, the mood wasn't really right. Um, It didn't seem right in Congress to move it forward. It didn't seem right for various reasons. So we didn't didn't move it forward maybe as aggressively as we could have. Um, But I would say over the last three years – Uh, starting in about 2019 is when we felt the mood in both countries was right for such a program. uh, And we found receptivity in Congress to, to moving the legislation forward. And Shelley can speculate better than I can probably on why that is Um, because support for you for Taiwan in the U S has always been strong. Um. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, it seemed like this was the time to move the program forward. And I would emphasize that this this has taken us a long time, and I don't see this coming around again. So if we get it right now, it could be an enduring program between the U.S. and Taiwan for 30 or more years, uh, just like the Mansfield program has been in existence for almost 30 years. But this is probably our, our... our best and maybe our only shot at getting it right. It's hard to get the stars aligned in Washington on anything. And when you're this close, um, this is often the best chance you're going to have. It's kind of a one-shot deal, I think, at this point. Thank you for impressing upon the importance of this. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to this, Shelley. The Taiwan Fellowship Program is requires uh, cooperation between both uh, Taipei and Washington. So it was really important for there to be enthusiasm for it um, in both places. And so it's taken some time for that enthusiasm to build, I think, on both sides. So the fact that we have that enthusiasm in Taiwan and in the U.S. right now is really critical. What happens if this if it doesn't get passed? Well, there's an old saying in Washington that no decision is ever final. Everything can always be appealed and an act can always be reintroduced. And I suppose if it doesn't pass in this Congress, we could start all over in another Congress. But really, I think, as Shelley said, the momentum is with us and the support is strong in both Washington and Taipei. So this is the time to get it done. It's going to be hard to mobilize the support needed a second time around. So I think our real focus is getting it passed in this Congress and getting it signed as part of the Competes Act. Now, if the Competes Act, this large 2,000-page bill, somehow uh, falls apart, it's very likely that a smaller Asia-related or even Taiwan-related package could be cobbled together. So you could wind up with, you know, a couple hundred pages dealing with U.S. relations with Asia, and that could be advanced and 
pasts and go to the president. Um, but I think the real focus now is is getting the large competes package done and the underlying uh, much smaller Taiwan bills along with it. And um, up to this point, we've spoken mostly about the U.S. side. What about the Taiwan side? What has the reaction to this act been in Taiwan? So the reaction in Taiwan has been very positive. My organization, our organization, uh, traveled to Taiwan um, during the drafting stage of the Taiwan Fellowship Act, and we were able to meet with uh, the senior leadership, uh, some of the president. President size cabinet members, and there was very strong support. And when the act was then introduced, it received a lot of favorable media coverage in Taiwan. And actually, there's a clip on the web you can find of a Taiwanese journalist asking President Tsai about the act and her opinions, and her response was was very favorable. So the support has been very strong uh, right up to the highest levels in the Taiwan government. And I think the, re the response in media and social media in Taiwan has also been quite positive. So we're very happy with what we've seen in terms of not only the American response, but also the Taiwanese response uh, for this initiative. So would you say that it's a sensible program looking at it from the Taiwan perspective? Yeah, I can speak to that. You know, I think... Sometimes in Taiwan, people worry that things that, that Taiwan can do together with the U.S. will provoke Beijing and have backlash for Taiwan. And there have been many instances where things that people in the U.S. did, which I think they intended to be beneficial to Taiwan have created some negative consequences for Taiwan. So it's not surprising to me that, you know, there's a little bit of uh, skepticism, like, are, are you sure this is a safe thing to do? So, you know, programs or projects or ideas that many people in the U.S. would think, well, sure, everybody in Taiwan is going to love this. That's not always what the response is sometimes they're quite controversial in Taiwan. And sometimes even people who were the intended beneficiaries have to say kind of, ooh, you know, no, thank you. I appreciate the sentiment, but I can't do that. Uh, one of the things that I really love about the Taiwan Fellowship Act is it does not have that quality, right? There's nothing anti-China about it. In fact, as Richard has made clear, part of the purpose of it is to improve U.S. diplomacy and to upgrade the skills of U.S. officials for dealing not only with Taiwan, but also with the PRC. So this is a, a program that I think everybody in Taiwan can get behind. It's also very consistent with the priorities of the current Taiwanese government, which include increasing Taiwan's role as an international education center and particularly expanding Taiwan's ability to provide Mandarin language education okay. to people from all over the world. So, you know, I think, I think it's well aligned with the Thai administration's own priorities without having that kind of that anti-China quality that sometimes makes things more controversial in Taiwan. 
For a small island, Taiwan's very a very partisan and political place. Do you see support only on one side of the aisle, so to speak? Have you seen any opposition to this proposed program in either country, U.S. or Taiwan? So we've seen great support on both sides. Uh, when I traveled to Taiwan um, uh, in 2019. I was careful not only to talk with the DPP administration in power, but also to talk with foreign policy leaders from the KMT side. And there was no opposition um, expressed. There was, I think, the feeling that this is a good program between two partner countries. And our effort has been very uh, bipartisan in both countries. You know, we are not a Republican or Democratic initiative, nor are we a green or a blue initiative. It's very important that a program like this be as neutral and as down the middle of the road as possible, because it's not our nonprofits or the congressional programs uh, place, really, to, to, to preach a certain political viewpoint. I think it's more uh, providing education and providing a platform uh, for fellows who will, over the course of their stay in Taiwan and their studies, be exposed to different viewpoints. I mean, one of the many great things about Taiwan today is, unlike a lot of countries in East Asia, you really can engage across the political spectrum. You really can reach out to almost any political actor, any nonprofit, and meet with them and speak with them and hear their views. And we fully hope and expect that our fellows will avail themselves of those opportunities to really engage with the society um, you know, across the political spectrum. In terms of opposition, no, we haven't, not in Taiwan and not in the United States. Um, we've seen really strong support. And again, I think because this is a non-military program, it's not focused on um, anything particularly controversial. It's really focused on education and building of ties between uh, working level government officials, we've not encountered any opposition in either country. You mentioned earlier that the Western Pacific Fellowship Project is a volunteer-led organization which has been funding this initiative. What are your needs? Do you have any need for funding and can people contribute financially to support your effort? Yeah, we absolutely do have a need for funding. I mean, any nonprofit even a volunteer-run nonprofit has basic expenses. There's always legal fees, there's travel fees, there's all kinds of things that come up in moving any piece of legislation or any initiative forward. And we certainly would welcome any donations from supporters of this effort and supporters of the, the longer-term Taiwan Fellowship Program once it gets up and running. Uh, we're really getting to a crucial stage. We, for the past few years, have promoted this on our own as volunteers, self-funding. And now as we move to making the program a reality, it's really crucial that we begin to bring in more outside support. So we very much are transitioning to an active fundraising effort in both the United States. And I... I do think this is a good initiative for anyone who's concerned not only with U.S.-Taiwan ties, but also with the defense and promotion of democracy and cooperation between democracies um, across the Pacific. We have a website that's uh, simply western-pacific.org, which provides more information, and we are a 501c3 
a nonprofit and we can offer the standard IRS tax exemption and then income tax deduction for any donations. And so we are looking very much at sponsorship uh, from both the United States and Taiwan. One thing we've heard from the Congress is they want to see support not only from governments, but also from individuals in the private sector. There's a big focus right now on public-private partnerships and burden sharing among allies and among partners. So we do hope to see uh, good support coming from private donors and foundations and, and corporations active in both countries. There are a lot of leading figures in the U.S.-Taiwan relations community among the directors and advisors of the Western Pacific Fellowship Project. How did they come to be involved and what are their motivations? I could maybe speak for myself. Uh, you know, I don't know that I can speak for anyone else, but I have a feeling that my story is not unusual. Richard asked me about this idea many years ago. He said, you know, what about a Mansfield Fellowship for Taiwan? And I just instantly saw the virtue in that, you know, that, um, as I said, we were losing that kind of um, two-sided appreciation and understanding among our, our scholarly community, our student community, but most worrying to me among our diplomatic corps and, and other uh, people in the government who do work with Northeast Asia. And so I immediately recognized the value of bringing Taiwan into their awareness, into their consciousness, into their training. And because Taiwan is such a good player in all this kind of activity, you know, uh, when you, as Richard has alluded to, when you go to Taiwan, nobody's trying to steer you to only hear one side or to see one set of uh, organizations. You know, if you go to Taiwan, everybody wants to talk to you. Everybody wants to meet you. Everybody wants to buy your dinner. And so this is a way for American officials to really understand Taiwan deeply and efficiently. It doesn't take you know, 15 years, or in my case, you know, I, I, my first trip to Taiwan was in 1982 when I was a college student. You know, it, it doesn't take 40 years to, uh, I guess it's, yeah, oh gosh. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> you really come to appreciate the value of Taiwan. Uh, we think we can do it in a shorter period of time. And so I was immediately attracted to the project and, and basically, you know, what can I do to help this thing come through? And Richard has done the really heavy lifting ever since, relying on a cadre of people like me who really believe that um, the opportunity to support better relations between the U.S. and Taiwan and to train up a cadre of American China specialists who have great language skills, which you can get in Taiwan because the teachers are amazing, and a, a really balanced view of the situation in the Taiwan Strait. That, that, why would we not be eager to help? 
Yeah, I think Shelly's experience is is typical. Um, when I reached out to different people, people not only like Shelly, who's a leading academic focused on Taiwan, but people who were really at the top of the U.S. government interactions with Taiwan, you know, directors of AIT, chairman of AIT, essentially the American ambassador in Taiwan, if you will. Um, you know, it was not a hard sell. People got the concept immediately. These are people who know the relationship inside and out, but who also know the concerns of Taiwan and the U.S. in the wider region, and they could see the immediate value. These are people who had served in China, who had served in Japan, and who had served in Taiwan and other countries, and they immediately saw the value um, of such a program with a key democratic partner like Taiwan, and that it was time for Taiwan to enjoy such a program uh, and for the U.S. to enjoy such a program with Taiwan. You mentioned that this concept is based on the Mansfield Fellowship with Japan that started in the mid-90s. Taiwan's a much smaller country than Japan and not an official treaty ally. So why do you think that there's such strong support for such a program with Taiwan and why not a more regular American ally like Germany or Thailand? I'd like to answer this question with an anecdote. I was giving a talk recently to a group of uh, people from the U.S., Taiwan, and the PRC. And at some point, I must have referred to Taiwan as a country. And one of the PRC participants just was started yelling out from the audience, Taiwan is not a country. Taiwan is not a country. And so I finally said, you know, I don't think from the standpoint of how the U.S. is going to interact with Taiwan, you saying that it's not a country really matters. You know, Taiwan has its role, it has its importance, it has its virtue, and the U.S. does not even recognize Taiwan as a state right? Yet, it recognizes Taiwan's role, Taiwan's importance, and Taiwan's virtue. So, this program is a way of making sure that we don't lose the thread, that we don't get kind of pulled away from understanding Taiwan as a thing in itself, so it's a protection not only against sort of forgetting about Taiwan or drifting away from Taiwan, and also against forgetting that Taiwan matters for it in its own right and treating instead Taiwan as some kind of a tool of U.S. in, you know, some kind of a pawn in the U.S. relationship with the PRC. So I think it's partially... Uh, the complexity of the relationship and the degree of uh, danger in getting this relationship wrong that also makes it more important. The stakes for the U.S. in the Taiwan Strait are incredibly high. And I know they're high in other places, but uh, this is a uniquely difficult challenge that this particular program is uniquely able to address. It won't be the whole answer, but it seems like a good start. I agree with Shelley completely. I guess the only things I would add are at a more practical level, you know, 
the Congress has been very clear in our discussions. Members of Congress and staff have been quite clear that they see a program like this as sort of special. Um, it was only done with Japan for the last 30 years. Um, it will only now be Japan and Taiwan. And I think a lot of people really feel that it has to be done with a democracy. We're not comfortable doing it with a non-democratic state because it really is sort of a, a testament to democracy and to cooperation between democracies. So you asked about Thailand. Unfortunately, Thailand hasn't been a democracy for a number of years. Uh, so I don't think you'd have the level of support in Congress that you do, say, uh, with Japan and with Taiwan. Um, and as for other countries, you're right, Germany, good U.S. ally, a democracy. Um, there isn't as much of a need, uh, as far as I understand. And there's also just the need to train people in Chinese. And Taiwan's an excellent environment for doing that. And it's an excellent environment for up-and-coming U.S. government officials. It's a great place to learn Chinese. It's a safe place to learn Chinese. You can travel around and talk to anybody. You're not going to be followed. You're not going to be spied on. It's a good place uh, for U.S. government officials to bring their families and to study Chinese and to work closely with their Taiwanese counterparts. Okay, well, I want to thank both of you so much for your longstanding work and the work that you've done for Taiwan and, and the friendship, the longstanding relationship that you've had with Taiwan and taking time out of your schedule to be on Talking Taiwan. Sure, my pleasure. I've been speaking with Richard Pearson, the Executive Director of the Western Pacific Fellowship Project, and Professor Shelley Rigger about the Taiwan Fellowship Act. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.